Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Time Extend. My name is Adam Ismail, and joining me today is... Brendan Norrison, and um, hot off the heels of what has been the most ridiculous month for our Twitter ever, um, we thought we would have another new episode for you guys. Hopefully we've got some new listeners out there off the back of Racing Madness. And um, in terms of an agenda, we're going to kind of recap what actually happened during Racing Madness. And then um, go back to talking about uh, two very special Dreamcast racers. It's um, a bit of the the new as far as Time Extend goes and a bit of the oldie, Adam. Yeah, I think uh, after Racing Madness was incredibly uh, exciting and I think I thank everybody for you know interacting with it and getting excited by it and sharing it um, I think we all kind of need to cleanse the palate though after that because it was uh, <laughs> it was a bit of a runaway thing like at a certain point it's just like damn like w- you know we hoped it would it would do well but we never expected it to blow up the way it did um, but but nevertheless I mean that's a good problem problem to have if you consider the problem and uh yeah, so so we're gonna we're gonna talk about that for a little bit, then we'll then we'll go on to um, you know the the classic time extend discussion, if you will. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess like just chatting about racing madness. I guess if you're listening to this and you don't follow us on on Twitter um, or you're not on Twitter, which if you're not on Twitter, that's I think you're living life the right way. <laughs> you know, that's probably a good thing. Uh, what we did was we took 32 of the, you know, what we consider to be or what are generally considered to be the best racing games of all time without thinking too much about exactly what that means. We picked 32 really good racing games and we put them in the bracket and we seeded them. And uh, every day we would we would run a poll and then, you know, it took about like, it took about Oh, I think over two weeks to to get Racing Madness to, to do all the voting and to get to the end. Um, but but the result was uh, was pretty crazy because certain games, as we uh, very quickly discovered, <laughs> command a huge fan base, uh, a bigger fan base than we even antici- anticipated. While some other games actually didn't perform as well as we thought that they would, um, and that's I guess probably the most like kind of globally like view the general way to put what unfolded because if you dive into like all the matchups things things got things got pretty surprising at a certain point yeah for sure i even think um in the kind of top 32 round at the very beginning there were some major casualties like f0gx uh grid forza horizon 3 Midnight Club Three, like it's it's unbelievable some of the, the names that went out and I mean I think first of all there were there was a I think in that very first top thirty two we started to see a bit of a a stifled reaction from some people like amazed that some of these games could go out and I always think that kind of removes the context of being a top thirty two racing game anyway like that is pretty incredible when you think about it. I mean, yeah. the, the purposes of this list wasn't to do an empirical IGN-style list where games like Forza Horizon are kind of always destined for the top 10 and we, we pretty much know what those 10 are going to be. This was actually started to see from the Time Extend community, which in itself, we the, the types of racing games we see get mentioned on Twitter sometimes directly to us is incredible just to see how niche it goes. It was really to see from our audience who liked what games and 
if they had to try and guess what would be the best game ever, vote for the options they felt deserved it the most. And when you think about the matchups, in a top 32, very first round, Grid versus Drive Club, for example, is an absolute juggernaut matchup. And um, that's just an example of what we had to face. And I think a lot of people maybe got too caught up in the idea that the first round was a, a bad performance because it's quite the opposite. This list, we didn't make it based on our favourite games, of course. It was more about what we had seen in our community, what we see people talk about a lot and interact with a lot. And I think that's why... Um, some people maybe who didn't follow the account beforehand were a bit surprised at some of the games chosen or a bit surprised um, that their favourite maybe didn't win in that first round. I think it's important to realise this genre is so wide and varied. People love so many different kinds of games. There are certain influencers out there supporting certain games. <laughs> and yeah, it was just it was an absolute perfect match for chaos. And once it started to pick up traction, it was hard to guess what was going to happen. Because I, I don't know if you agree, Adam, but I feel as if if we had the same level of interest that we had at the very end, at the very start, I think some of the games that went out in the, the first stages could have actually made a, a push towards the final even. Yeah, because the, the, the very beginning was pretty much just a small number of people voting. And then by the final rounds, we saw the vote counts go up, you know, five or six times compared to the beginning um the final rounds also especially the last one was uh was a two-day thing so that allotted some some more time for voting but yeah i mean you know there were there were definitely some comments about like certain choices the the biggest one especially early on was why is gt3 and gt sport on the list and not gt4 <laughs> and i mean questions like that uh, you know, I, I, there were some questions as to why, like, Need for Speed Underground wasn't represented. With a list of games that is this small, you kind of, because 32 games, again, as you say, like, it seems like a lot, but it really isn't. Uh, you kind of want to represent different eras and different, uh, you know, kind of flavors of certain franchises. So... You know, the thinking with, like, GT3 versus GT4 was kind of like, you know, GT3 was, like, an earlier game, and also it was kind of the one that where Gran Turismo really exploded. I mean, Gran Turismo exploded from the very beginning, but, like, GT3 is the best-selling game in the series. Um, I think the second best-selling game on the platform, second to GTA 3, like, that was the one that everyone had. And so that was kind of, like, Gran Turismo's, like, legendary watershed moment. And then, like, if you're a fan, you play GT4, and you probably like GT4 more, and, you know, because GT4 had more of everything, but, like, GT3 is the one where it kind of crystallized that. And so, like, that's why I picked GT3. You know, it, it, it's, it's, it's one of those things. I mean, Brenda and I can tell you it wasn't, like, the games that weren't on the list were ones that we hated. Like we had to <laughs> yeah. lose so many of games that we personally liked. Like uh, Sega Rally Revo was originally on the list because it's one of your favorite games ever, sure. and uh, we 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 got rid of it because it just didn't make sense. We wanted to represent. I think I think we replaced that with like Driver San Francisco, just because again we wanted to get like yeah, diversity yeah. in there. We wanted to get different different franchises represented and stuff. So that's just kind of the nature of a thing like this and and as i said in the uh you know in sort of the the post more than post that that i made uh that was i don't think it was on time accent where i think it was my personal twitter but like this is not 
this is not the scientific process, you know, exactly. it just, yeah. it's just something people get a kick out of. And so we did it. That, that was it. It wasn't, you know, <laughs> it's not something you need to think too hard about. I mean, the final round, um, which we, we haven't said on the air, uh, but it was, it was Need for Speed Most Wanted 2005 versus Drive Club. <laughs> now, those are both fantastic games. That's why they're on this list. We, we love them both dearly. But And, and I, I think early on I envisioned that Need for Speed Most Wanted, even before, like the, you know, before there was the clear support from it. Uh, I think we all knew that Most Wanted had the same power to go deep. Eventually, well, very quickly it became clear it was going to go all the way. Um, yeah. But like Drive Club, I never would have imagined. I mean, Drive Club was like the seventh seed in its respective region. It went up against Grid and it lost to Grid, which I thought was unthinkable. And then, or sorry, it beat Grid. And then yeah. it beat Daytona USA. Like, y- you can't predict this stuff. And like, even though we seeded it based on like what we what matchups we thought made sense, um, you know, another criticism we got is like, well, why didn't you put like the two kart racers against each other? And like, why didn't you put like... I don't know, GT Sport against Forza or something like that. And it's just because, like, then you don't have as many varied games making it. Like, if we put, for example, Mario Kart 8 and Crash Team Racing were on uh, in the bracket. If we put them immediately together in the first round, that ensures that only one kart racer can ever move forward in this bracket. And, like, that's not what we wanted to do. We wanted to have it kind of coming from all sides so that there was a potential for a ridiculous final round like i don't know crash team racing versus freaking you know Colin McRae rally 2.0 like something something insane like that so it was it was it wasn't engineered to do anything in particular other than just be entertaining <laughs> and i think it succeeded <laughs> at yeah that. i mean i think like if anything the comments about why aren't the kart racers facing the kart racers, why aren't the sim racers versus the sim racers, it actually kind of encapsulates a point we've made a few times on the podcast. Like, if anything, the absolute need to sub-genreize everything in the racing genre is what stifles it at the end of the day. The need to make Drive Club a simcade by definition, that type of thing. It ultimately... It doesn't help a genre that really needs to try and kind of identify itself differently. I mean, you think about it, if something like Auto Modelista came out nowadays, what would people be determined to call it? Like, it's... Uh, handling <laughs> the handling aside in that game, just like, people would see that right away and they'd be immediately like, oh, this is Simcade because it's harder, or, oh, this is an arcade game because it's easy. Like, I feel as if... There, there is that kind of general attitude to racing games nowadays where we try and either discredit a game based on stupid parameters or try and give it more justification because it happens to simulate tyre temperatures at Spa. Like, <laughs> I, I feel as if we we get lost in these intricacies that ultimately don't matter when a game like Daytona is still shit hot. And that's ultimately what we wanted to prove through the back of it, I think. It was more to do with what games in here stand out enough that people are willing to vote for it and if we're thinking about a standout performer from the bracket for me I was amazed at PGR2 how far it got because it beat Mario Kart 8 right and a lot of people might say we don't have many fans who like kart racers but I don't think that's inherently true like I think Mario Kart would have been a stick on from that before the polls happened and then to beat Dirt Rally 2.0, which that was, was 
Yeah. I mean, that game was flagged by the official Dirt account. Yep. And I, I'm still amazed by it. And when people asked why we didn't have Blur on the list, there's your justification. I feel as if Split Second won a poll against Blur and Mod Nation Racers way, way back on the Time Extend Twitter account uh, in May when we were celebrating mm. the anniversary of those games. So that's why Split Second was chosen as well. But even here, if we're thinking about bizarre creations and the legacy they've left, PGR2 beating Mario Kart 8 and Dirt Rally 2.0 and then only losing to Most Wanted 2005, that's my performer of the bracket. And I, the I thing is, so it buzzing. didn't, like, it lost to Most Wanted 2005 because everything did, but it didn't lose by that much. Like, it, no. it kept it way closer than OutRun. It kept it way closer than Wipeout HD Fury. Um, it was pretty, it was an impressive showing for PGR2, which I thought would be kind of the most forgotten game or one of the most forgotten games on this list because, you know, PGR's memory has been uh, unfortunately sort of replaced in many people's eyes by Forza Horizon, which, you know, we don't necessarily agree with, but that's kind of what, what has happened. So... It was really cool to see PGR2 do that. Um, I think it's funny. I, I did see the comments like, why isn't Blur on the list? And it's like, honestly, like I, I think Blur is a great game, but I, I, don't, I don't think Blur, I mean, at least for me personally, it does not crack yeah. top 32. Like there's what, what people, what I wish more people would understand is like, there are so many other great racing games than this and ones you can argue could be in this list, but at the end of the day, they can't all be here. Like they just can't. I I had to get rid of Scud Race, which was <laughs> which which broke my heart, but like, um, oh, sorry, not Scud Race, because Scud Race made it. Yeah, um, yeah, lost the GT4. I guess uh, Daytona USA 2 is what I'm thinking of. Yeah, yep. I had to eliminate Daytona USA 2, which it, it, to me is like, in terms of being iconic, it's not as iconic as the first game, but in terms of being a better arcade racer, I think it's probably Sega's best, like technically speaking. And, uh, you know, we, we got rid of it because I, I think at that point we wanted to give um, give Midnight Club 3 a spot or something like that. It, it was like another series that hadn't been represented that we wanted to have in there. And that's the, that's the challenge you run with a thing like this. So... It yeah. just, it, it is what it is at the end of the day. And, and we've done it. And now that we've done it, we, we don't worry. We don't have to do it again for a <laughs> long time or maybe ever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And see, the thing is as well, like, if you're looking through this list and are annoyed that your favorite wasn't either in the list or maybe handed a unfair matchup, whatever that means, <laughs> um... I just think you got to look at it from perspective because there is nothing wrong with one of your favourite games of all time being a 7 out of 10. Like, I, I, I think I said this in the Discord, I absolutely adore uh, Penny Racers on the PS2. Like, I just fucking love that game so much. But I'd never say that it should be on this list and Sega Rally Revo was like a last minute um, uh, pullout. And it was actually... It was like myself that t that was kind of talking about it back and forward with you, Adam, when you were putting it together, and I was like, I'd love to have Revo on this list, but if I'm being honest, it probably doesn't do enough to be on this kind of, I was going to say empirical, that, that kind of goes against the scientific mm. point of made earlier. Not empirical, but uh, kind of a culture. If you're trying list. to represent as many things as possible, I mean, at a certain point, I looked at the list and I was like, there are too many Sega games on this list. And yeah. anyone who's listening to this show or has listened for a long time knows that that is our favorite developer and publisher. And, you know, we actively at a certain point had to say enough Sega. So that's just, 
That's how it goes. Yeah. I mean, and if you think about it, right, the, the best exemplification of why this bracket did its job, the top 16, Gran Turismo 3, Sega Rally 1995, Burnout 3, Ridge Racer 7, Need for Speed Most Wanted, Outrun 2, Dirt Rally, Project Gotham Racing 2, Ridge Racer Type 4, Call McRae 2.0, GT Sport, Burnout Paradise, Ridge Racer 5, Driver San Francisco, Daytona USA Drive Club. If you had that as a library, of racing games like you're pretty much ticking every box possible yeah i mean those are those are 16 amazing games i don't think anyone would complain uh i was i was amazed i, I mean we, we we can go through this list uh round by round i know we don't want to do that but you said driver <laughs> san francisco and i honestly could not believe the f-zero gx went out first round but yeah you know that's that's what happens yeah, and like, and that's that why the decision so to put it on there was driver San Francisco was a good idea. Like, there were there were people who were like, "This is a racing game." <laughs> oh god, yeah. But like, the, the thing I, that was one of the small moments. Another one of the small moments about the bracket I loved, where like this driver San Francisco like fan base emerged from the shadows, like <laughs> never seen, never heard, and it was like John Tanner avatars and <laughs> John Tanner usernames. It, it was just like it was crazy to see because it, it just it's just a reminder that in this genre there are people like the V-Rally people who are just like they just love when the games get mentioned and they get so hyped by it and it's fantastic to see and at the end of the day that's what I want to do I, I want to give light and attention to those games because I could put Gran Turismo's 1 through 4 on here but is that really gonna be <laughs> yeah. like do you really want to see that battle like honestly I just I don't know at a certain point it just gets tedious and you need variety um so yeah I mean I'm I, I feel like at this point I'm peeing myself uh but this is all this is also like us kind of you know at this point a week out from sort of when this ended reflecting on everything and just being like expressing all of the thoughts that we really couldn't express when it was going on um <laughs> so now that yeah. that's done uh i just say again regardless it's the internet it's twitter it's it, it is the way it is and in spite of all of that uh thank you everybody for uh for you know noticing this and and uh voting and sharing it and retweeting it and sharing your thoughts and stuff i know that we at this point are kind of like all hot takes out and everything i know that these <laughs> discussions of this game versus that game have gotten old the brackets the bracket is over so we can move on <laughs> but yeah, uh, yeah we really we really appreciate it when it was going on and uh it you know got way more attention than personally i ever expected so so thank you for that yeah, exactly, and I totally echo those statements. We've also had some um, fun interactions with some of the more kind of storied um, racing game influencers and content creators as a result of this. Um, even some of our own kind of personal heroes within the <laughs> the gaming kind of subsection on YouTube and stuff. It's it's been a, it's been a phenomenal ride, and every single person that voted made it worthwhile. Um, and more than ever now we're seeing people kind of tag us and cool stuff like it's so great when you see people playing like old racing games maybe that were on this list with their CRT out and stuff and they're like tagging time extend that's the kind of that's the reason we get into this shit at the end yeah. of the day like we were all about that passion like just we, we wanted to do this 
initially just to celebrate racing games and the variation within racing games. I feel as if the top 32 exemplified that, but the actual interactions we've had as a result have went even further because seeing people so enthusiastic about some of these titles that many might consider lost to time now, it, it's just phenomenal. Um, and yeah, we're building up to that big 50th episode, Adam, and I feel as if right now it's great seeing all the interaction and stuff, because um, th this year, as in general, we'll do a year review at the very end, of course, it's just been fantastic, the amount of the amount of people talking to us, showing us cool racing game facts, that type of thing. It's just brilliant. I feel as if Racing Madness was a, a, nice, a nice example of that. Yeah, definitely. And uh, now, you know, if you're listening to the first time, Thanks for uh, thanks for putting us on, and now that we have you right where we want you, we're going to talk about Dreamcast <laughs> racing games. <laughs> yes, this this is the end game. We're in the end game now. <laughs> We're back, we're back to the, we're back to like one of the very first um, sub-series as we talked about in Sega, Sega Racing System. Um, I, I think this would count as a Sega Racing System episode. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a Dreamcast racing game, it doesn't necessarily have to be made by Sega, um, but it's actually a pair of Dreamcast racing games and, and we're going to be talking about the Tokyo Extreme Racer series, although specifically 1 and 2 because that series is actually massive and I don't think either of us have played most of those games. <laughs> yeah, it's actually, um, it's one of these series is that people who like it really, really like it, um, personally speaking, the only the only one that I've ever been heavily invested in was uh, Zero on the PS2, which I mm. absolutely adored. Um, it's also one of these series, and I guess that will come up as we talk about these two games. It's one of those series where I, I don't ever find myself like always craving more of it, but when I do revisit these games, um, I, I always enjoy myself. It's um, it's one of these types of games that probably haven't scaled well in terms of what we expect from modern game design and stuff, but I think that's part of the charm. Yeah, there, there are no racing games that really work or feel or operate the way that these do. Um, you know, you basically had the series that started out on the SNES and then had a couple entries in the, the PlayStation and Saturn generation and then arrived on the Dreamcast with, with Tokyo Extreme Racer 1 being a launch title and then 2 coming out a year later. Um, and even though the series is very iterative, the, the development, you know, kind of watching videos and comparing both games, because I have two, but I, I never had or played one, and Brendan, you have one and don't have two, so we can kind of fill <laughs> yeah. in each other's gaps of knowledge, but like, when I look at videos comparing one to two, it honestly amazes me that it was just a year in between the development of these games, because um, they look, you know, not quite a generation apart, but... but Two looks so much more visually simulating to me, even though it's yeah. you know 
probably the same game under the surface. Uh, and then you see two going to zero, and, and you can talk a little bit about zero, especially because you played it. I, I've played a little bit of zero, but zero essentially is just like a 2.5 modification on Tokyo Extreme Racer 2 for the PS2. So like the series just kind of, in a way it's very iterative, but even then you can sometimes be surprised by the changes. And um, because I've been playing, at least my experience with two has is so long like I, I i played two for the first time when i was a kid when the dreamcast you know was actually like an active system um yeah. i didn't understand how these games worked at all i didn't and i and to be honest i still don't really get it i mean i, I get it at the surface <laughs> level and that's why i feel like if you're if you're a txr nerd uh this is probably going to be the kind of episode where you're gonna be able to pick a lot of holes in the things we say because we're not <laughs> as immersed in the lore and the series as you probably are uh we're definitely not however um i remember going back to txr2 after uh, a number of years and you know i was probably like a teenager in my early 20s or something like that and trying you know basically pouring through facts that were written like 15 years earlier to try and figure out like how i'm supposed to play this game and it really is like they they don't hold your hand at all. It is just it is classic game design in its purest form. It just happens to be a, you know, Japanese street racing game where you're on highways at night all the time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like you said, it's not it's not a type of game you go into and can readily apply any skill sets that are retrieved from other racing games because um I mean, I suppose now would be a good time to just kick off in terms of the the game discussion we're going to have. Like you say, that I've been uh, mostly playing the first game in the series because that's the one I was able to track down for a not ridiculous price. Um, and effectively, for those who aren't familiar with the series, like Tokyo Extreme Racer is effectively uh, a street racing game that takes place at night on Tokyo's highways, like you just said. Um, but from a gameplay perspective, it's not about racing around in a circuit on these highways or winning in the traditional sense. This is a, a racing game that's basically, uh, as um, many an article have already said, a fighting game in concept. Um, it's basically 1v1 races on the highway. Each car has a uh, health bar and by stretching your lead as far as possible you can basically take away health from the car's health bar. Now what's interesting um, in the series as it goes on, as you'll know from too Adam, um, the health bar can also be manipulated by collisions, um, hitting walls, that type of thing. But in the first game, that isn't actually the case. So in the first game, the only way to take uh, health off each car is to uh, get as far away from it as possible. So, I mean, did, did you know that at all, Adam, or is that the first that you've heard of? I actually, I actually no didn't damage? know that because because yeah. I've uh, so so I will say I did play one, but I must have been like it must have been right after Dreamcast came out. I was really little. I had no idea what I was looking at. We probably rented it from Blockbuster or something like that. Um, so I didn't know that because two, you know, honestly, I you know, like so, some of the rivals in two are just way too fast for you, obviously. But the bigger problem I yeah. have is not hitting walls. Uh, so to hear that you can 
slam into walls as hard as you want in the first game, and it doesn't really matter. Is it seems like it would make things pretty easy. Yeah, exactly, and I think that's the the kind of the, the core overarching theme of this conversation of the first game on the Dreamcast is that it's very much uh, it feels like a concept of how this game will play out as it as it develop as the series develops past its kind of more primitive roots. Um, the the one v one racing is great. But the the issue is, and you'll know this from playing too, um, Adam. The way the cars handle is like very on purpose, rigid feeling. Like they're not really, uh, they don't really feel like cars in other games. Personally, I don't think like they they have a nice sense of weight to them that makes like nailing a corner, a high speed corner on a highway that in any other racing game would be fairly simple to navigate. It makes it feel like an achievement when you're able to kind of line up the corner perfectly. But in the first game, because you're not penalised for hitting walls or hitting cars, that type of thing, um, you basically just get in the mindset of like slamming into walls and just keep going. Um, it makes the races a bit more anticlimactic than the series would later be. But um, I think that the important thing about the first game, as you would expect, is that it basically sets the scene for where the series ends up, which means that it's still great fun and once you realise the concept, the, the 1v1 racing is so great. And the game does this through many ways in my opinion, like the, the health bar system is so simplistic and to the point that once you start a race, you understand what the objective is, which is really important for a racing game that isn't just a, a finish first type scenario. Um, and then secondly, it also kind of plays into the fact that this is a, a racing game with a bit more character, you could say, by having like the the kind of the player character has a title, and as you race through the game, you get a better title. But importantly, the rivals that you face, and subsequently the boss cards later on in the game, also have their own kind of clan, their own um, title themselves, and it just makes for some great great laughs playing this game because some of the names are like ridiculous um the, the way the boss cars kind of approach you from behind and flash their lights when they want to race just that like you would do to one of the more lesser rivals it it's just a really fun experience and one that really does feel very japanese in the best ways possible I think Tokyo Extreme Racer manages to have this character that other racing games don't have, even from the very first game in the series. Um, one of the things as well that really stands out to me um, and kind of enhanced my knowledge of cars even as a kid is the fact that there aren't officially licensed cars in this game technically, but the cars' names are actually the, the way they would be referred to by the chassis internally by each company. So it's like, you see the names, type whatever, um, and the, the part that is whatever is actually what that car has in terms of its chassis type in real life. And the first time I found out about that I was blown away because I was thinking like, surely they would still have to license this? That I, I don't get how they get away with it to be honest. Yeah, it's, it is it is the best way in which um unlicensed cars can work right because if you're a car nerd and you're playing this game you will know you'll know exactly what the cars are because you know it's, it's yeah. not like first of all in terms of unlicensed cars in some games you'll see like in horizon chase turbo for example 
you know, even the Viper in that game isn't exactly a Dodge Viper. You know, they make slight changes so that they can't be sued. But that wasn't really a problem that anyone was worried about back in the 90s. So, um, you know, these these are full on the same, uh, you know, in terms of styling. They look exactly like real cars. And then you're able to see the chassis code in the name, um, which, you know, again, if you're a car nerd, you're going to know what that means. You're going to see it gets really granular, too, because like, yeah, you'll see like JZ A80 or something like that for the Supra. And then you'll see JZ A70. I don't know if that's an actual code, but like, you know, you'll see slight differences <laughs> for different models. And then like, you know, if you know anything about the Supra, you'll be like, oh, that was the one that was the RZ twin turbo and that other one's the SZR. Like, you'll know that. And that's like really cool. Um, again, also a really small thing, and if you're, you know, if you're just a casual player, unfortunately, that part's going to be lost out <laughs> uh, to you. But yeah, and it allows them to get kind of all of the cars that need to be in this game without much trouble. Yeah. You know, it's uh, it's a predominantly Japanese car list, uh, at least for two. But with two, you do actually get a, a couple, you know, non-JDM models. There are some Peugeot hatchbacks in there. And yep. there, when you get really late in the game, there is a Dodge Viper, I think. There is a Porsche 911 and a BMW M3. And then those cars actually, I have never actually been able to drive because I have never gotten so far in the game that I've even <laughs> seen them. But they exist. And that's kind of, uh, that's kind of crazy because with all the JDM cars in this game, if you're playing a good chunk of it, you would never expect to see anything that's in Japanese. So once you once you do, even once you see a Peugeot, it's like, holy shit, what? Like, where'd that come from? And it makes me think like, wow, were there really like, you know, midnight runners or whatever in Tokyo in the 90s <laughs> running like, you know, Peugeot, uh, I don't know what, not the 206, but the other one before it. Like, were they really like driving those cars? Like the 306, it's like... That's kind of funny to think about, you know, next to like say Civic Type R's and whatnot. But yeah, yeah, it's a it's a really like it's a kind of game that if you do have that knowledge going into it, uh, you can really sink your teeth into it, and it really nails the it really nails the culture well. If that's you know if Japanese street racing from the '90s with the you know quote unquote aesthetic and everything is like what you're after, like these games have that in spades in a lot in a way that you know i feel like many other games maybe tried to pretend or fake it these games feel really authentic yeah 100 percent. and the the kind of the variation in the cars really plays into the the game's progression as well because yeah basically at its core the bit the more you go into the game the faster the cars get but they manage to frame it so like whenever you see a certain kind of car you almost get that ominous feel like oh no that this is going to be a tough one like for example if the ai has a supra or an nsx but like you also you also see like other iconic cars and if you grew up on txr they might resonate with you more than what they're known for in pop culture like for example for me the the Torino A86 it wasn't Takami's car in Initial D it was the rolling guy's car in TXR <laughs> um, and I think that's that's the cool way that the game manages to frame its overall the main mode quest the quest mode it manages to frame it as this like the the midnight runners on the highway 
Um, and, and there's actually a blurb that sums it up really well. In the very first game, you get like this kind of cheesy intro before you go into quest mode. And like the first paragraph, like says, "In the darkness of the city night, where turbocharged renegades rule the road, the rivals of the dark road, these rulers of the streets await the challenge of an eager novice. Make one mistake <laughs> in your last, left behind, swallowed by the dark." And what's funny about that is like it's so over the top and melodramatic, but it, it sets the scene for what ultimately makes the gameplay exciting. If you make a mistake in this game during the races, you're pretty much beat. Like, yeah. if, if you crash out, the health bar just depletes so fast, and it means that even in the slower cars at the very start of the game, there's always a sense of dread that because the the car you've just bought doesn't have like the the weight loss tuning or anything like that. Like, if you if you even slightly miscorrect your steering. And the car's body weight shifts in a way that's like irrecoverable and smacks like a passing by truck or hits one of the um, the road markers in the tunnel and your race is ruined. It creates like a nice, exciting atmosphere to the races regardless. Um, obviously at the very start of the game it's incredibly easy in pretty much all of them, but especially the original um, with the wall, being able to wall ride and stuff. But like... As soon as you start to kind of get actually challenged and you run into some areas of traffic and that type of thing, especially um, when you're looking on the mini-map and you can see there's a junction coming up, that's always a, a bit of excitement because the corners are a bit harsher, there's a bit more traffic in those areas. The game does a good job of making what is essentially a glorified drag race with the occasional turn very exciting and different to play. And I think that's one of the reasons why even the original on the Dreamcast is one of my favourite games on the console because there really is nothing like this and in my opinion it's achieved by making the cars handle so uniquely. I don't think this type of game would work um, if the handling was as tight and controllable as most other arcade racers. The reason it works for me is the more that you climb up the speedometer it is a bit boaty physics wise you could say once you start to get higher speeds but it just like every time you turn the steering wheel even a little bit it seems like you're taking a risk at a certain point when you're in those faster cars yeah it, it adds to the drama and yeah you described it perfectly when you said you know even though a lot of these roads it feels like a drag race with a turn or two in them I am afraid of turns in this game in a way that yeah. I don't fear corners in most racing games. Uh, Tokyo Extreme Racer really makes you dread a turn that you see coming up uh, because there's especially one part of uh, you know the, the highway loop that I think is in both games and it's just a very, very, very long straight line. <laughs> And yeah. any time I am battling a rival and we're coming up on that, I'm so excited because I'm like, I'm going to be fine. <laughs> like if I can just, I have the horsepower advantage, like if I can just get around them, I can really do some damage here because at the end of that very long straight line is a very tight corner and the bridge and I'm definitely going to lose it there. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, it all works very well you know you feel like the game the, the handling model is strange but but weighty and i appreciate that about it it's a little under siri but i do like how dramatic it can get and it works well for the kind of game and the sort of roads that you're on um 
you know, we, we never talked about actually who's responsible for his game, but <laughs> yeah, if you're a yeah. fan, you know it's a, it's a Genki-developed uh, series, and like, they always, you know, I, I, I think Tokyo Extreme Racers is obviously what they're most well-known for, but like, all of their racing games are very unique in that way. They're never really comparable to anything else. I mean, you can look at MRC on the N64, you can look at like Racing Battle C1 Grand Prix on the PS2, one of their last PS2 games, I think. Uh, no one really ever does it like them, and this is uh, this is probably the most exem exemplary of that. And it's something you also see reflected in sort of the the system of progression in this game. So, like as you were saying, Brend, you you have these battles, but there is sort of this invisible tree of enemies that you don't even really know exists. I mean, you go up against someone oh, and they have yeah. a name, but everyone's part of a club. And yep. once you defeat enough drivers in that club, you might face a mid-boss. If you beat the mid-boss, you might face a few more enemies or something like that, and then you might get to an actual boss. Uh, the, the thing is, the game doesn't tell you any of this, so you pretty much just have to, like, sort of feel it out. Be like, oh, I've beaten two people from this club, so... I guess, you know, if I see someone else that I haven't beaten, which would be marked on your map, then you know that that's, like, a big opportunity. But you also have to remember which clubs they're from. And then, like, there's the added challenge of, like, if you, for example, face a mid-boss and you lose, that actually sets you back in a way because, like, you either may not be able to face that mid-boss again or... Yeah. If you beat the mid-boss, you might have been able to go straight to the actual boss. But because you lost to the mid-boss, now you have to face other enemies before you get further. So it's just like, it is a mess, and they don't tell you any of it. And that's probably the, the, the biggest issue I have with this game. And it's not it's not so much that, like, it's... I mean, I, think, I guess objectively you could say it's bad game design, because unless the player really wants to get into the lore and explore this stuff they won't know but it's not even that it's just that it's very it's very obtuse and honestly i i don't know how i would have been able to figure it out without faqs or anything like that because there, there is there is a lot here and uh, i guess it speaks to the power of the series and and the love that people have for a series that like there are people who will respond to us on twitter who will make references to certain enemies in the game and i'm just like how do you remember that guy out of the 370 drivers that are in Tokyo Extreme Racer 2? Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't know how people have this, like, incredible, like, database-like memory for all of the individual characters in this game because it just, it floors me. But again, I think it's just a testament to how powerful it was. I think as well, like, in, in, the, very, in the very first game, um you have these um, other drivers, the other clubs, but the, there isn't too much distinctive beyond the kind of logo, the name and the car, but as the series progresses it starts to incorporate driving characteristics into the actual drivers as well, so like if you, if you look at the bio for some of them it will say like known for his reluctance to take corners at high speeds, so they can be like comically fast like cars in straight lines and then they get to the corners <laughs> and just basically come to a standstill and then in like Angelus and Ridge Racer fashion just like fucking float it on the straightaways and catch up with you again and there can be loads of like silly stuff like that um, even like this type of game I always, in my opinion, it's like perfect when you're kind of a child playing racing games because 
you don't care enough about an actual story, but little bits of lore here and there are what make games memorable. And even just silly things like um, the edgy guy that has the fully blacked out car with the red rims and stuff, like you're just like, oh, it's so cool. Um, and he only appears at certain times a day. The obligatory character with three question marks as their name. <laughs> there's like, there's loads of little elements like that that would become a bit more prominent in the later uh, games. And I think that's the, uh, that's where Genki deserve plaudits because in the first game, the gameplay loop is great minus the um, the lack of collision and environmental damage which takes away a lot of the, the drama um, and the the introduction of clans and characters and player titles is great but it, it, it kind of lacks that little bit of polish that they then add in the, the subsequent games giving them these characteristics and um, like you said it is a bit frustrating if you don't have a walkthrough and stuff to find some of these guys but th there's other elements as well that I really appreciate where like Rolling Guy are one of the first like um, clans that you face throughout the series and then um, I think I think it's in Zero one of the members of that clan is actually one of the like final bosses but he's still using the fucking the, the Trino it's just been like <laughs> modified to shit and it's just funny because you've been versing these guys with like fucking three ace cards as their clan logo a skeleton Oh, this stuff, the the famous angel with the scythe, and then it's just like the big smiling rolling guy icon appears, and it's like, is he in the right place? <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's just funny because like it's a typical like trope in manga and stuff where th there's always that unlikely foe yeah, who's yeah. in the high ranks, and Tokyo Stream Racer plays that up really nicely, and it, it just gives the game a bit more character aside from you are facing faster cars. There are examples here where one of the like, ridiculous hidden bosses drives like a Nissan Coupe or something. <laughs> and it's just like little moments like that that make you go, yeah, it's pretty cool. And in the first game, those moments are kind of few and far between, sadly. Um, it very much feels like a basis from which they would build upon as the series got a bit further on. But even still, like I just really love this game, and it's just a shame that something literally as small as not having damage for collisions ruins a lot of the drama and excitement that the series should have. Because, like we've talked about, the scariest thing in Tokyo Extreme Racer is taking any given corner, and you kind of remove that when, so long as you kind of have the right trajectory, you can kind of hit the wall and continue on. Yeah, yeah, and and. I guess with that, like Tokyo Extreme Racer 2, what what I've noticed, I mean, I, again, I didn't even realize the, the, the lack of damage when you hit walls in the first game, but in addition to that, um, there, there does seem to be more fleshing out of the rivals and stuff like that. There is a section sort of of the menu where you can read about the rivals and and kind of learn what their characteristics are. Uh, you, you also kind of know this is like graphical shift in the game and and it's uh it's interesting what they've done because if you if you look at videos and you compare the two i don't know if the first one attempts to run at more than 30 frames per second i mean i guess you you could verify that um yeah but the first the second one sort of has an uncapped frame rate so sometimes it's very very smooth and sometimes it literally slows to a crawl. I mean, just like if there is, if you're racing someone and you come to like two or three, you know, 
sort of uh, vehicles on the road, like, you know, just uh, cars, traffic on the road, that can be enough to just totally just slam the game down to a couple frames per second. Uh, and then it'll pick right back up again. Um, so it does It does definitely <laughs> seem to be performance limited. However, the trade-off to that is that, I mean, I remember playing this game when I was a kid and I legitimately thought it was the most beautiful video game I'd ever seen because uh, I, I, I can't verify this for certain, but in my opinion, Tokyo Extreme Racer 2 had the most beautiful and detailed car models for like the day it came out because like holy shit i mean they still look fantastic but like you have the reflections going over the cars you could bring the camera in really close so they're really big on the screen and when you look around especially in two like in one they had kind of a skybox and two they lose a skybox yeah. and the sky is just black and so all this game really has to render are buildings the road and some walls occasionally or maybe a tunnel and then it seems to spend like 50 to 70% of its polygon budget on your car, which I think is, <laughs> is a really uh, car nerd kind of way of, you know, engineering your racing game. But I love it. I mean, I loved it at the time. I fell in love with the way the game looked. Um, visually, it's striking in that way, but also just the UI is, is beautiful in both games. It, it looks fantastic. Yeah. The music is incredible. Like, I don't know the first game soundtrack that well, but TXR2 soundtrack is, uh, without a doubt, in my top five, like, racing game, or just video game soundtracks. It really is that amazing. Every single song is a banger. And, again, this being a Genki racing game, like, it, it feels like nothing else out there, and that extends to the soundtrack. I mean, no game, you know, has has a soundtrack i think that that quite sounds like this one and uh it just contributes you know it's kind of kind of that ridge racer type 4 thing in a way it just contributes to the overall vibe and it really makes it memorable i mean i feel like i i like electronic music that i like today because tokyo extreme racer 2 was like so formative for me yeah, for sure. The, the soundtrack is a pretty much consistent throughout the series, and one is no exception. I think as well, one of the the things that really kind of tie together the package are that the very small cutscenes that will play if you're versed in a particularly storied racer as well, because it just helps build up that kind of hype before the race, especially when you're just not sure how fast some of these cars are going to be. Some of them are utterly mind-blowingly quick. Um, and you have to kind of think of a, a bit of a different strategy to beat them. And ultimately, I think what makes Tokyo Stream Racer so memorable is that it isn't just a typical racing game. Like, street racing became incredibly popularised by uh, Need for Speed Underground. But I feel like kind of highway racing... Uh, it's, I don't even know many other series that have tried to kind of take this mantle from Genki and Tokyo Stream Racer. And I don't think you could come up with a better gameplay mechanic than pretty much making it a, a fighting game because it just it highlights what the challenge is on these types of race. It isn't so much about hitting the right corners and stuff. It, it's more about getting as far away from your opponent as possible when you've literally got a few corners to do it. It almost makes me wish in like GT Sport you could <laughs> go into a TXR type mode for the, the Tokyo Highways on that game. Yeah, absolutely. It really changes the dynamic of the way you play the game. 
um, it, it unfortunately exposes some flaws too because one of my favorite uh, I don't know if you can call it a bug but one of my favorite like weird things about just Tokyo Extreme Racer is that the AI will have a really difficult time trying to figure out which road to take in a, in a junction especially <laughs> yeah. especially if you're in front of it like that's the funny thing is like sometimes you'll be trailing the AI it'll be like is it gonna go left is it gonna go right and that like jukes you out and then it ends in a draw and it's like all right I was behind I mean I probably wasn't going to pass him it's fine I'll take the draw rather than the loss but if you're in front and the the dude behind you doesn't go the same direction as you especially if they have all the time in the world because that will happen it'll be like you'll have a massive lead or a, a lead that's not so massive like the ai obviously knows where you are but like it, it could see where you're going and yet it will still choose the other road or it will choose a road that is locked to you which is especially a problem in two because um I mean, I don't know how one works, but in two, basically half the map is locked for most of the game. So when yeah. it goes the wrong way, you're just like, what the fuck? Come on. <laughs> and then you can't re-challenge them because they're on a different road. So it's just, th that is that is probably one of, my, one of my favorite awful things about this game. Because <laughs> at a certain point, you really feel like it should have been addressed, but it just like never was. And so you can just get into these ridiculous situations. Sometimes they'll just like just slam into the middle of a junction because they can't make up their mind. It's really funny. Yeah, and especially like in the later games as well because of that um, damage on collisions. Sometimes you'll be in first and you'll just see like a massive chunk of their health bar deplete <laughs> and you know exactly why it's happened. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I always got so happy anytime I saw like the driver in front of me like crash into one of those yellow trucks or, or hit, you know, just like a a car just on the highway it was always a great moment for me i mean i will say in terms of ai the game does kind of feel unfair because there there are some cars that are just gonna be way faster than you and you know it going in like like you said when you see the supra when you see a really suit the bar x7 you know in my playthrough i still have like a lancer evo 5 and like if i see those other cars i like it's i know it's over for me but they can also take corners way faster than you, which kind of feels unfair. Like, I, I noticed that a lot. Like, I feel like all the AI cars have way more grip than you in this game. And I think in, in classic racing games, that was not as much of an issue. It was pretty much always assumed and obvious when the AI was cheating. But I think today, like, the idea of the AI having an, you know, a, a not authentic or genuine advantage over you in a way like that is a little bit more frustrating than it might have been back in the day. I mean, when you're a kid, you would have just been like, oh, he's really good. But like now you can kind of like <laughs> see through the bullshit and yeah. you're just like, damn, well, I will never be able to carry an extra 30 miles per hour through that corner. That's just not going to happen. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's why if, if you've never played these games before and you're maybe interested after hearing us talk about it, Try and go in with the mindset that you're playing a game that happens to be based around racing as opposed to a kind of traditional racing game because like you said, that there's a lot of um there's a lot of gimmicks at play here that make for a fantastic uh, fun experience. But it's not something like you can play and like, rely on your racing ability a lot of the time. Um, it is kind of a skill in the game to kind of guide the, the AI cars into other trucks and stuff and 
the aforementioned junction madness can be incredibly frustrating, especially if you're versing one of the later bosses. Um, it's a very fun, very Genki game, and I think that's an important point because um, I think on the back of TXR, people think like Genki are these like forgotten heroes of the racing game development scene but um, through other projects they've tried to do outside of TXR they've had kind of middling results like Daytona USA 2001 um, I think like they, they know the exact handling that makes TXR work and I think that's evident from the first game onwards but I, I don't think like you could ever say I'd, I'd like these guys to make a traditional racing game and it's good because TXR isn't that yeah, I mean, all they ever really make is weird stuff, and this game is very weird, so it, it definitely uh, definitely fits that bill. And there were, there was something else I actually wanted to say about these games that is totally slipping my mind right now, and I hope I can remember it. But, um, yeah, Zero, Zero was always a weird one to me. I might actually have that game somewhere. I need to look. I remember... I really wanted it when I was a kid and I got a PS2 because I had enjoyed TXR2 so much. And uh, I, I don't think I ever had it when I was young, but when I was a teenager, my friend had it, and so I basically stole his copy. That might be the one I have somewhere. And I put it in, and I was kind of disappointed to find that it was basically just TXR2 again. Um, with yeah. seemingly really no changes aside, the UI looks a lot worse in my opinion. It, and and the and the music that I loved from TXR2 in a lot of cases has been remixed to be worse. It's one of those situations where it's like every decision <laughs> you made here is not really flying for me. But uh, the the one thing I actually okay, so so this is what I wanted to say earlier is something I really loved about TXR2 is it it has that sort of auto modelista quality to the. Um, the car modifications and the upgrading and and what i mean by that is just like all of the parts that are on offer i don't really know if they're real or not um they're definitely not licensed but there's some i mean you know you'll, you'll have maybe like a selection of like five different bumpers or, or you know five different side skirts or hoods or whatever for your car they all look amazing like that that's often the issue i run into with forza's i feel like all of their aftermarket parts look like crap and all of the aftermarket parts in this game <laughs> or in these games just look really really good like it's uh it was really one of the first games i ever played where i was excited to modify my car and i just thought that was like the coolest thing ever like you can make some amazing looking cars in this game um you know it's not it's not very there's no livery ad or anything like that you can, i think you can put a sticker on your car but that's about it it's it's not that deep but it is very simplistic, but like I just remember like there are certain body kits that stick out to me, like what you can put on like the S2000, which was like one of this game's like kind of cover cars because um, it was like, you know, new at the time. And I just remember some of them looking absolutely insane. So I, I think that's another way in which this game really nails the, nails the cultural aspect of it. And one of the sort of things that I really miss about Tokyo Extreme Racer, I, I wish we had, I wish we had a game today that really tried to approach that sort of uh, that vibe and that aesthetic and that time and that culture. Like, it's really been missing. And you know, I don't think Genki Genki is. I think they tried doing like a mobile racer recently, and it didn't really pan out. And I think it ended. 
I, I don't think they're in position to do that, but uh, I hope somebody is. I, I know there's that um, there's that Night Runners project. Yeah. yeah, that that might be that sort of thing, but I don't know enough about it to say. I mean, the funny thing is, like, despite it looking graphically great, and especially two on Dreamcast because it's such a massive jump, it, it's because like they can implement it. Like they can implement all the necessary visuals in such a simplistic to the point way. There's no need to get lost in the overall environment which it takes place because it's on the Tokyo highways. There's no like ridiculous kind of environmental effects to consider or anything like that. All you really need are the, the highway loops and the cars and you can make a game that looks fantastic so long as this, like the, the simple visuals that are on display are nailed properly. And um, that that's what I really love about this game. It felt so mythical playing through it because just something as simple as the boss car approaching you from like behind once you'd finished another race. The way that it used the the flashy visuals to its advantage was really cool. You were saying about like the fact that you can customize the cars being important in this game and how it represented the culture. And it's so true, like every single rival in this game has a very distinct car yep. that while well, you're playing through it anyway, you'll instantly recognise and be like, right, that's the mid-boss I lost to last time and he's back for more. But instantly you're put in the mindset of I want to beat this guy. And it's something that I don't think racing games do enough outside of libraries. Like, um, take something like Forza Horizon, for example, where the AI cars are just so like lacking personality or anything that makes them distinguished um, compared to like, Tokyo Extreme Racer where it's like every single AI you you race in this game is its own character within this universe and it isn't told through an overdramatic backstory or anything like that it's something as literally as simple as this is his symbol this is his car and this is his driving style that's the three core elements of every single AI in Tokyo Extreme Racer and when you combine that with the, the very mysterious nighttime driving and the, the the kind of emphasis on just flashing your headlights to start an event, like everything is just so well defined within that game and the, the culture of highway street racing, it just makes it a fantastic experience to, to be part of and it just goes to show like you can cram your game with as much of everything as you want but if you don't need the core fundamentals, in the case of TXR, the car customization, the um, the quest mode, then ultimately it, it will always pale to games like this when it comes to being engaging. And I think that's where TXR on the Dreamcast really shines, because everything just feels so well polished and thought out that it just makes it a fun experience to play and be part of. It really is a paramount example of doing amazing work with just sort of a limited, you know, set of assets and just game design. Like, it's very straightforward, as you've said. And yeah, I mean, essentially, you're racing in a tube. It is the most beautiful, like, <laughs> fucking tube you've ever seen. And the car model is, like, ridiculous. But yeah, I mean, essentially, you're just, you're, you're driving in a tube and uh, in, in this corridor. And it is able to sort of transcend the sum, the sum of its parts and feel really, really special. And yeah, you, you got to imagine that it's been, you know, two generations since since we really had one of these. Actually, well, there, there was import tuner challenge on uh, 
on the Xbox 360, which I never played, which yeah. was uh, Shotoku Battle X. But you, you, I don't know. I just my my mind goes goes like to the end, like trying to think of like all the crazy ways in which they could utilize the power of of systems now that you know they they really had to in the past design the game around limitations and and the results were generally good uh but now you know what what would a modern tokyo extreme racer game look like that's a really exciting thing to think about and i i hope somebody you know makes that or, or you know whatever whatever is being done right now comes through on that promise because uh it was it was a mainstay. Like I think we really took it for granted. I know I did. At a certain point, like I don't. Yeah. Yeah. You know, a bunch of them came out on the PS2. There was zero. There was three. There were the drift games. I never played any of them. And when when Import Tour Challenge came out on the 360, I think there was actually kind of a, a victim of marketing. I think at the time when I was a kid, if I had known that that was a Tokyo Extreme Racer game, I would have probably tried it. But because it just had yeah. like the really shitty ass looking like hot import nights kind of aesthetic to the front of it, I was just yeah. like hard pass. I don't care. It was the same with um, Street Supremacy on the PSP yeah. as well, published by Konami. Like I, I when I bought that game, I didn't know it was Tokyo Extreme Racer. I remember like watching like a fucking 240p preview video on Gamespot. Um, back in the day, and I was like, oh, that reminds me of Tokyo Ocean Racer, I'm gonna play that. Bought it, turned it on, and then when I seen Rolling Guy, I was like, wait, what? <laughs> this is a DXR game? And yeah, that, that's pretty much a, a port of the very first game, or it feels that way anyway, if I remember content-wise. Um, yeah, that's what that's what people have said. Um, it's funny, that that's yeah. another game that like I remember when it came out, and I probably should have tried it, and I didn't. And the PSP is such a um, has been said to be like kind of such a console or a system of parody with like the original Dreamcast because you also had the you had the crazy taxi ports, you had the yeah, Power Stone yeah. ports. At a certain point, the PSP almost became like the Dreamcast, like but in portable form, and so it's really appropriate that those games landed there. But Wikipedia actually points this out, and I I need oh, to find okay. the the line. So I mean that that is a port of the first game. But the the Tokyo Extreme Racer series, yeah, okay. So so uh, it's actually the the Wikipedia entry is pretty dense. Whoever whoever did the, the <laughs> Chitoku Battle Wikipedia page uh, deserves some credit because uh, under the franchise section it says the series is known under many names through localizations such as Tokyo Highway Battle when published by Jalico and THQ. Tokyo Extreme Racer, one published by Crave, Tokyo Highway Challenge, an import tuner challenge by Ubisoft, <laughs> and Street Jeez. Supremacy, one released by Konami. So this this series has been published by like so many different publishers. It has had so many different names on it, which is uh, is kind of sad that that Genki had to go to these ends to just get their game out there, but also speaks to the staying power of the series at the time because. They were able to pump them out, and they were they were always ultimately able to find a publisher to do it. Uh, and apparently, uh, I I didn't know this because, like I said, I barely played the game. But the theatrical trailer of the first Fast and Furious movie, and the ten minute Tokyo hardcore documentary I don't know what that means were in Western editions of Shotoku Battle Zero. Uh, what? 
can't even remember yeah. that. <laughs> I don't know. It, maybe it was a, maybe it was American versions, not PAL versions. But yeah. Ah. Wow. That's so you can them. you can watch a trailer for Fast and the Furious in the in Tokyo Extreme Racer Zero, and I remember the first game was sponsored by um, uh, Import Tuner, right? I think it's I think Import Tuner. Yeah, it was magazine. indeed. It's pretty heavily featured. Yeah. yeah. And what's the name in in Europe? It's uh, it was Tokyo Highway Challenge, right? Yeah, they changed it. It was Tokyo Extreme Racer. Well, sorry. So um, it was Highway Challenge. And then by zero, I think they changed it back to Tokyo Extreme yeah. Racer. It's one of those cases where like so. extreme is like stupid because, you know, at that time everything had like extreme in it and had the X. But I think I I attributed it so much with that series that to me, even though like Shotoku Battle is the name of it, I still think of it as Tokyo Extreme Racer. Like I just I have to. Yeah. It's just yeah. it's just such a part of the name. It's almost like a Scud Race Super GT thing for me. Like, I think I call it Scud Race now because the world calls it that. But before the internet, or even once I knew about the game, like it was, I would never call it anything other than Super GT. It was always Sega Super GT. <laughs> See, um, I'm just going back to one of your previous points about like what. Tokyo Steam Racer could look like nowadays. Can you imagine like that hyper to the point aesthetic with like ray tracing oh and stuff? God. Oh my god. Yeah. Oh, I mean that's that's the beautiful thing about like not having to render like a, a ground. <laughs> you know? <laughs> or like pedestrians. <laughs> like it really frees you up to do some amazing things. But I, I think that's one of the the benefits of the series is that doesn't maybe take that much complicated game design or you know asset design to produce something that looks really good and i think that's that's where genki was able to succeed with these games because i mean i don't know when, when you then go take that and compare it to daytona usa 2001 which is a mess for a lot of reasons uh it, everything kind of falls yeah. apart but in this uh very controlled environment that is tokyo extreme racer games it works very well I just wonder what Genki are up to now because apparently as of 2019 they had 151 employees so it's not even as if they're working off of a skeleton squad or anything like that so yeah I'm just having a look now so business contents, uh, planning development and sale of video games, uh, planning and development of Pachinko and Patchy Slot so I'm guessing that's where they mostly concern their, their efforts now sadly. I think they did what every, you know, prodigious but not super successful Japanese developer from the 90s did, which is they went into publishing mobile games and, and pachinko. I feel like that's just where they all ended up. I mean, um, Imagineer, who worked on MRC, I think, with them, and then also worked on GT64, which is a decent N64 racer, they... They just make mobile games. I, th I think they don't even make mobile games. They make like sticker packs that you can buy for like iMessage oh. and Line. <laughs> like, <laughs> so sad. <sighs> I found up to date uh, employee figures actually. As of March 31st, 2020, they've got 152 now. So they've wow. employed one other person. Maybe that's the, the TXR guy. <laughs> they've, they've grown. Uh. Also, interesting thing about the Genki logo, if uh, if you didn't know it, the uh, Genki logo is a, is a picture of a face, uh, you know, a, a, a childish drawing of a face, and that <laughs> yeah. was a drawing by the creator's son. Ah, 
That's cool. So I had a, a Genki sticker on my very first car, an old uh, 1990 Suzuki Swift. That's so cool. That's so cool because that I have that sticker on my car in TXR2. So it's like driving a <laughs> TXR2 car in real life. It's That's amazing. It. <laughs> and I've never been able to find the storefront I got that weatherproof sticker from again. Um, I always remember, like, I got that and it was like two Drive Club stickers, but the Drive Club stickers were like backgroundless. So it was like the main parts of the emblem, but then like, the red of the car behind it, it was really cool. Um, the person that was producing those disappeared off the face of the earth, though, and oh, I'm sad no. because. Uh, I mean, maybe Redbubble and stuff now and, like that you could find something, but this guy, if I recall, was actually creating these pretty bespoke, so it was really fucking cool to have a Genki sticker on the first car. If you know anyone who creates Genki stickers, uh, please get in contact with us, and we'd like to buy some. Or if you, in fact, yourself produce Genki stickers and you're listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to see what an album art inspired by the Genki logo would look like from yourself, Adam, because you always do such a good job. I want to know what you would And the, the TXR, the TXR <laughs> covers look so cool, especially, oh, I mean... Yeah. I mean the the Western covers are whatever, but the Japanese covers are beautiful. Uh, especially the Shotoku Battle Two cover that has it's just you know their logo with you know the the Japanese characters and the, uh, the the sort of like plus sign and then two and then that's that's it. That's all. That's all. The, those are all the words you get on the cover, and then you just have like a side profile of a Honda NSX just bathed in you know midnight street lamp that yeah. that's it and it's just so simple and beautiful i think like the, the problem with the western covers is that they tried to i think they tried to make it look evidently based on that fast and furious trivia like look kind of similar to the, the kind of street racing theme that was relevant at the time but although in some of them like tokyo street racer drift but it's just very crude 3D They're really bad. I mean, I think the Tokyo Extreme Racer 2 uh, cover, even the Western one, is pretty good because it's just a, an NSX and a and a Supra just kind of going through a corner, and the NSX is like drifting, and it's all yeah, it's I all like assets from the game, but at a higher resolution, everything, so they look really crisp and beautiful. It's almost like a like a CGI render and. Yeah, it's a, it's a good look. And the, the cover of it uh, has a quote from GameFan that says, The undisputed king of Dreamcast racers. I would say, I would dispute the undisputed <laughs> part of that, but I would definitely say it is one of the kings of Dreamcast racers. This is uh, certainly one of my favorite Dreamcast racing games. And, you know, one of my favorite racing games ever. I, I, I did, it did cross my mind that we didn't have any uh, Chitoku battle titles on the racing madness bracket but you know again as we said it's uh, there was stiff competition there yeah exactly i mean for me like i absolutely adore these games but i also think they kind of epitomize the whole seven out of ten racing game type thing where i think they're from like i i love them to bits but i think like in terms of um the kind of extra touches that make a, make something a racing game incredibly special it's probably like if you if you aren't totally enamored with the the gameplay mechanic, I could see why you could be disappointed by this game. And I think that's the the biggest issue. If you, if you don't quite get on with the way that it handles the racing, I could imagine this not being something to play. But personally, like I just I love it. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, I'm glad we got to talk about it because uh, I was really racking my brain for like we, we really we really have talked about like most series like we're kind I, I I'm not gonna say we've talked about everything there's certainly something we haven't <laughs> but like in terms of like our core interests I feel like we've touched on almost everything uh, and I feel like a, we're not running out of ideas but I have to dig further into the well like Need for Speed was like such an obvious one that we hadn't talked about until we had those episodes uh, and we did the one with Casey which was fantastic and, and now we can cross that off our list uh, we can cross off Tokyo Extreme Racer off the list which is good um, maybe return to it and talk about Zero or something at, the, at a different time but yeah uh, I'm, I'm just glad we got to talk about the Dreamcast racing game because it's been it's been a long time since we've done that and these are kind of my favorite subjects for time extend because uh, you know that ain't nobody's talking about Dreamcast racing games anymore <laughs> <laughs> exactly everyone talks about everything but the racing games like I always find it incredible when people are talking about why the Dreamcast was so good, did they actually forget just how many bangers it had in the genre? Um, yeah, I, I, it's one of my favourite topics as well, and I think it's because it it's really like almost returning home <laughs> after a long trip away. Whenever we get to do a time extend episode on the Dreamcast racers, it feels like we're still within that first one to ten episode <laughs> window. Yeah, don't go back to those episodes because uh, they have a lengthy news section that is <laughs> ill-advised. I almost uh, feel like we remastered the first. <laughs> just if you we don't have to remaster them. We should just put an. I should put a notice on every single episode from one to ten. Just like skip a half hour into this. Just skip the first half hour. Unless um, you want to see us pretend to care about the five latest cars added to four to seven. Oh my god, the, the Totino's car pack. Yeah. Oh man. Well, <laughs> to, we found our niche through that and realized what we wanted to talk about, and ultimately that's all that matters. Right. No regrets. It got us here, so you can't regret it. Exactly. All right. Well, thank you everybody for listening to this episode, and you'll hear from us again soon. Thanks for listening, guys.